All right. Yes, open up your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We will be in verses 11 and 12 today. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. A good subheading to this text today is, To persevere, a man of God must flee worldliness, pursue godliness, fight the good fight of faith, and take hold of eternal life. And before we lose heart due to the weight of the calling, this text also implies the hope we have in our captain, the author and finisher of this fight, the one who determines our steps, the one who has ensured the victory, the one who will lead us through the gauntlet he has ordained for us to make us more like himself, the omnipotent creator and sustainer of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. The title of my sermon this morning is The Peaceful Life of War. This text is the battle plan for the life of the believer. The paradox of striving to enter in an eternal rest, all the while being at rest in the striving. The Apostle Paul gives Timothy four imperatives. And the four imperatives are simple. They are to flee, to pursue, to fight, and to lay hold. And we will unpack these four imperatives, and we will do it in three points as I have combined two of the imperatives, and later you will see why. My points this morning are very simple. Flee, follow, and fight. And as we dive in this morning, I want you to contemplate your journey thus far. I pray the Spirit convicts you in the areas needed and also provides comfort in the all-sufficiency of the one who calls you to this impossible task. And I want us to ask ourselves one question. Do you know something of the agony of the Christian life? Paul, as an old man and having a love for his beloved son in the faith, exhorts Timothy after his stark warnings in verses 3 through 5. Paul no doubt had faith in Timothy, or he wouldn't have appointed him. But with his youth and timid nature, it seemed right to press in to ensure his readiness for the battle to come. He initiates these exhortations by laying the groundwork for why young Timothy should listen. But as for you, O man of God. But as for you means separate, not of that pack. And what is the pack? Well, it's in the context of the false teachers that he spoke of before. Or we can even use it as the world at large. We are called to be different and not aspire to fit in. And it seems like that wouldn't be difficult, but isn't it sometimes the hardest trial that we face? Combining this natural affection for community and to be liked, the pride of not wanting to be seen as foolish, and in a lot of cases, the conditioning of the public school system from our youth. This is where we get the new year, new clothes mentality. It's hard for Christians because of the fear of man. My mom didn't adopt that mentality because my clothes were still good from the year before. So. Oh man of God, this is the why behind the contrast. Timothy is by nature completely different from the false teachers of Ephesus. So it's only natural to live that out. 
This designation was common among prophets in the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, and more. It was used often in the Old Testament, but only for prophets. And those who bore God's truth by speaking his word received this special designation. And this is precisely what Timothy was called to do in his ministry. There are only two occasions in the New Testament when this term is used. Our text this morning, 1 Timothy 6.11 and 2 Timothy 3.16-17. This is the only occasion when a man is ever specifically called man of God, however, in the New Testament. All Christians are men and women of God, but Timothy gets a special designation here. This is not to designate more value, but more urgency in the responsibility. The reminder of being God's man motivates a man to fight harder. In 2 Timothy 3.16-17, this designates all men in Christ as men of God, and therefore we would do well to adhere to these imperatives just as Timothy did. So our first point is going to be flee. Why would Paul need to warn a man so holy as Timothy to flee? A man that labored with him in the spread of the gospel and flee from what? Well, there seem to be three types of teachers in the community of the Ephesian church. And in the direct context of flee these things, Paul is primarily exhorting Timothy to flee these three things found in verses 3 through 5. So let's read them. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So there were those who meddled in social politics, telling slaves to conspire against their masters because they were now, quote-unquote, free in Christ. We saw that in verses 1 through 2 when I preached last time on 1 Timothy. This is kind of like the ancient day social justice warriors. Slavery was ended in the Roman Empire eventually, but who was it ended by? It was ended by Christians. Was it ended by a Christian siege or rebellion? No, it wasn't. It was ended through the proclamation of the gospel, permeating men's hearts and changing their character. Leaven will eventually leaven the whole lump in due time. There were also men who were full of questions and surmisings, boasting in their discoveries of the quote-unquote new and exciting as if the naked gospel itself was not sufficient. And these men were like those in the church that bicker and divide over the secondary and tertiary issues, majoring on minors and not for the sake of edification and invitation to deeper thought into the scriptures, which we must do, but of pride and this fanboyism as they slavishly follow whoever has the skinniest genes. I see it all the time. Dividing debates on Mother's Day. I've heard that people say that we are blaspheming the Lord for honoring our mothers because it's a Sunday. Psalm singing exclusively, instruments in worship, I hope they don't read Psalm 150, baby sprinkling, and even Christmas trees. And then finally, there were men who were striving to be rich, counting all as lost that they may gain mammon, even worth losing Christ himself. And this is likened to the prosperity preachers of our day, of course, but also a very real temptation to those of us who truly love God. As our flesh can blur the lines of hard work, success, and inheritance for our children with unhealthy appetites for wealth at the expense of spiritual growth. 
Now as a caveat, we are in a cultural war. And that war must be fought by Christians. Don't you dare back down from the barks of the wicked for self-preservation's sake. Yes, there is wisdom to be had in the battles you take part in. But like John Calvin said, a dog barks when his master attacks. And I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. We must not lay our swords down for the sake of hiding in our rooms to read the Bible when the Bible tells us to break down these strongholds and false ideologies, when the Bible tells us to rescue those who are ensnared, and when the Bible tells us to expose darkness, especially as it rises up among those who call themselves our brothers. When the Holy Spirit who lives within us has a ministry of convicting of sin, exalting the righteousness of Christ, and warning of judgment, how are you walking in the Spirit if you keep your mouth shut? We are to debate secondary and tertiary issues, sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron, and dig deep in hopes that we find a pearl in the sea that was once hidden from us or from our brothers and sisters. And we are to strive to be successful and lay up an inheritance for our children's children, as Proverbs says, a righteous man does. We are to take dominion in our sphere of business. And if we own a business, strive to get to such a level that we can employ and bless other Christians. If we're working nine to fives, work as hard as you possibly can. Work with excellence. Glorify God in your work. The point in these things is these things can become gods. And these principles can be twisted to mask proud pursuits in the name of holiness. Paul warns Timothy against these things, so we would be wise to not think that we are above this temptation as well. I experienced category one and two early in my walk as I went through months of Facebook and in-person debates with anyone and everyone who would listen. Christian, non-Christian, Arminian, and Calvinist. I spent hours in comment sections and yet spent minutes in prayer and in the scriptures. My heart grew cold towards brothers who had more or less light than I had. My heart grew cold toward the wicked who, yes, were wicked God-haters and disgusting, but also they're enslaved. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? I believe that was the beginning of a dark season that soon followed. Timothy was an elder of a prosperous church in a very merchant-rich, prosperous area. And we would be lying to ourselves to think that we are completely free of the temptation to be rich. Not in the same way that a celebrity would be, or even the ultra-rich. I can safely say most of us in this room actually could care less about that. At least not in the same way or with the same motives of the godless. But what I do mean is the wealth we currently have as people in one of the richest nations on the planet. The comforts of the cold, fresh water on tap, AC and heat cars, and just the overall ease of the American life. Look at how little an inconvenience it takes to keep people coming to meet with the people of God. And think of how little it took to keep you home at times. Now think of this underground fugitive church that do anything to meet together, even at the risk of imprisonment or death. Prosperity is a gift of God, but if untamed, it will always lead to spiritual leanness. Our temptation is the discontentment and the taking away of those things or the desire for more than the comparatively vast amount God has already given us. Now, does this affect your giving, either to the church or to those in need? Does this affect your anxiety to store up and hoard in the name of quote-unquote good stewardship? 
Does inflation make you grumble and complain for reasons other than the wickedness behind the puppeteers? We need to be very careful about this. The love of money does not always have to look like the desire to be Jeff Bezos. It could look like unbelief in God's provision and bitterness when the Lord deems it good to take things away from you. The aim of all these exhortations Paul is giving culminates in laying hold of eternal life, which we will get to later. The question we need to ask ourselves now is, are the odds and ends the means by which we are laying hold of eternal life? Or are we laying hold of the odds and ends instead? Cubic zirconium looks almost indistinguishable from a diamond. Remember, we need to be discerning of our hearts and ask God to search us. Now, in direct context, Paul is exhorting Timothy to flee those things he mentioned earlier in the chapter. And I'd even say from chapter 1. But combined with the contrast of, but as for you, O man of God, the message is simple. You are to flee because you are to be different. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Brothers and sisters, we are Christians. We are not people of the world dressed in Christian wrapping paper. We are ontologically different. It's a big word meaning that we are new creatures to our core. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is not poetry. You really are a new creature. If you are in Christ today, you did not turn over a new leaf, and you definitely didn't turn it yourself. God has recreated you and is conforming you in His likeness, and although fully according to God's free grace, let us not forget that, we as vessels of mercy are qualitatively different than those in the world. We are God's children being conformed into the image of Christ. And it may be offensive to some, but we truly are of a higher stock than those in Adam. Don't discount the work of God in regeneration with this false sense of humility to say that when God works in the soul of a man that they are exactly the same as the wicked of this world. With God being the perfect standard and only source of good, it logically concludes that the closer we are conformed into His image, the better we will become in all aspects of humanity. Men and women of the world are enslaved and overcome by their passions. We are called to buffet our bodies that they may submit to our minds. They are blind, naked, and dead in their sins. We have sight, are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and are alive in Him. They are of their father, the devil, and love to do His bidding. We are children of the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, who is to be blessed forever. Amen. Now, if this invokes pride in your heart, you need to repent. Why would you boast in what you have received if indeed you have received it, but do not deny that you have received it? Flee these things also includes all things that hinder you in this fight you were called to fight. Hebrews 12.1 tells us to cast aside uh, every weight and every sin. Paul exhorts Timothy again in the next uh, letter, 2 Timothy 2.22, to flee youthful lusts. And Paul exhorts the Corinthians to flee idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10.14. So with all these admonitions to flee, well, what does the word flee mean? Well, I can tell you that it does not mean to play around with. Flee does not mean to jog or briskly walk away. It doesn't mean to sit and tolerate and keep a couple steps distance away from. It is the same word used in Matthew 3, 7, when John the Baptist says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I don't need to go into the Greek for you to understand that fleeing from the wrath to come should not involve hesitation. The word means to escape, run away, or vanish. 
Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to time travel to get away from these things. This word also has a continual sense about it, a continual sense in fleeing. You must continually flee or bad, pursue good, and fight to endure all the days of your earthly life. There was one time in, in New York, I was about eight or nine, and uh, me and my friend, what we like to do, and it sounds kind of weird, but we like to go in the woods... And when there were trees that had wet rot, we would like to act like we were strong and go and push them over. And we were walking through the woods and um, we saw this huge, it was a hornet's nest or a bee's nest. And I, being the good friend that I am, told my friend to hit the hornet's nest. So he took the stick and he swung and that's all I saw. I was gone. I ran. He was stung, I think 10 to 12 times. I had zero stings. Zero. Why? Because I was out. I was out. And that's essentially what this is. Run. Don't think about it. Don't play with it. Run. Flee these things in terms of preparation of our pursuit of the greater. Now think about this. Olympians are at the height of humanity with their physical conditioning, mental discipline, and drive. They often go without sleep, they go without fun, they go without comfort, most from the time they are barely out of toddlerhood to attain a tiny little insignificant gold medal that will perish with this world long after their names and legacies are forgotten. And Paul actually makes this point in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-25 when he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. We are called to strive to, an obta- to obtain an eternal crown which will never perish. And how much do they put us to shame in our distraction in comparison to them? It is also implied by fleeing that worldliness seeks us. You don't need to continually run from something that isn't chasing you. We need to get out of its way, to flee from it as from a wild beast. If a wild beast was chasing you at this moment, would you jog? Would you stop to say, here, kitty, kitty? Even more so, would you stop running just because you're tired? No, you would keep running as fast as you could for as long as you could because your life is in danger. So let's take COVID as an example. Some people were and still are terrified of it. There is no shame in that. They will run from and avoid the slightest oncoming sneeze of a stranger. Some could care less. They walk around in the other ditch as if it has no ill effects at all or even worse that it never even existed. I, for one, am in the second camp. But going on nine months with messed up taste and smell, I will confirm it does indeed exist and was sinister in its formulation. To those who are afraid... And again, no shame attached. How much more should you fear sin and worldliness? The Apostle Peter says, fleshly lust wage war against your eternal soul. And to those who are not afraid, and also, no shame attached. God's words are true and there is no conspiracy theory with Him. COVID may be nothing more than a mutated cold, but sin will kill you. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I want us to think about this real quick. The scriptures tell us to resist the devil. 
The scriptures tell us to wrestle against the powers and principalities. They even tell us that the church will storm the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not prevail. But from worldliness, it tells us to run. Virtues, on the other hand, seem to retreat from us. The saying goes, bad habits are easy to start and hard to stop, and good habits are hard to start and easy to stop. And we need to pursue these virtues with the same violent pursuit as if we were the wild beast. So on to our second point, follow. The Christian life is often misrepresented as a life full of boredom and joylessness by the world and sometimes, dare I say, Christians. All these rules and regulations, we live among Vanity Fair but can't take part in Vanity Fair, and isn't that unfair? It's absolutely wrong. Paraphrasing something Vodi Bakum once said helps a great deal. Someone once asked him, So if as a Christian, God forgives my past, present, and future sins, then I can do whatever I want to do and still get into heaven, right? Vodi looked at him and said, You are correct. One problem, though. If God truly forgives a man's past, present, and future sins, he changes his want-tos. The Christian life is not just about fleeing. It is fleeing for the sake of pursuing something greater, namely God himself. Repentance is not merely a turning away from a list of thou shalt nots. Repentance is turning away from the things that displease God in order to turn to God himself. We were created with desires and created to pursue those desires. Sin has perverted God's good gifts and desires into a lesser than corruption. The world likes to lie to you that they own all the beauty, they own all the fun, and they own all the life. God is the originator of all these things, and His ways are perfect. The world ain't having all the fun as they would have you to believe. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, their pursuits are mud puddles when God offers a holiday at the sea. Their pursuits will ultimately end in destruction if those pursuits aren't used as a means to worship their Creator. Their pursuits may bring upon a short-acting explosion of dopamine, but dopamine is a two-edged sword. When dopamine is released in the brain, and who do you think dope, or put dopamine in our brain, it causes pleasure, but also has a numbing effect. This is why people say people that are addicted to drugs look dead inside. Likewise, the higher the high, the lower the low, because God has created us in such a way as to always drive things back to center, otherwise known as homeostasis, which is simply a state of balance or inward stability. Immediate gratification always causes this roller coaster, but God's ways provide the long burn of pleasure, joy, and fulfillment, and delayed gratification is always fuller and better. The world is like a man in a cave that's only ever seen a candle flicker. He holds tight to that light because it's the most he has ever seen, even when you let him know the sun is outside. Pity the world and their false cisterns, and thank God he has opened your eyes to the truth, and seek that which is above. So as we define what flee meant, let's define what pursue means. It means to move rapidly toward with intention or goal to attain. Just as flee means run from, pursue means run toward. In the same way, it does not mean walk toward. It does not mean take a month off. It means to hunt down until you get it. Men with wives in this room know full well what pursue means, and if you don't, you need to repent. 
Our pursuit of Christ should be even greater than that. Christians are men and women of objective, and our objective is Christ-likeness and ultimately Christ Himself. Make this your daily, lifelong pursuit. This implies you never fully get there, but constantly fight to attain it. Notice also something about the word pursue. It implies an effort. You must scratch and claw your way to attain these virtues. Now, parents, I want you to imagine yourself for a moment. You are standing outside engaged in great conversation with a brother or sister while your child is playing outside. You take a glance and you see them running toward the road with a truck coming. In that moment, will you care about that conversation? What about if someone tried to stop to tell you what they had for breakfast that morning? No, there is not a single thing on planet Earth that will keep you from getting to that child. The consequences of distraction are not only too serious, but anything other than that primary objective is actually furthest away from your realm of caring. Your single focus and goal is to get to your child. The zeal and urgency of that moment paints the picture of how we are to pursue heaven. We pursue heaven like a dog with violent intent. Tenacious like Jacob who wrestled with God in Genesis 32 and cried, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so what does the Apostle Paul tell Timothy to pursue? Well, six virtues to be exact, and we can briefly touch on them, as to fully exhaust each would require six sermons in themselves. But Paul also exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, as we mentioned earlier, in pretty much the exact same way. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The Apostle Paul must see this contrast as extremely important to repeat it to Timothy twice. So let's briefly go through these six virtues that are listed. Righteousness. This is not the positional righteousness that we have inherited from Christ for our justification. In Christ we are fully and comprehensively justified by faith and seen by the Father as perfect as He sees His Son because of what Christ has done for us. This is the not yet part of our sanctification that we aim for. Righteousness, simply put, is conformity of our lives to what is right. This is the same word that is used in Matthew 5, 6, that we are to hunger and thirst after. And again, in the very famous verse of Maynardville Fellowship, Matthew 5, 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Godliness. This is that inward piety and devotion of heart we are to have towards God. Righteousness is our uprightness towards man, and godliness is our uprightness towards God. Godliness is a broad term that encompasses the whole of the Christ-likeness we are to seek. In Acts 3, verse 12, when Peter and John healed the lame man and the crowds were astonished, Peter exclaimed, Men of Israel, why are you surprised by this? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The NASB translates the word, it's Eusebia, to piety. The KJV translates it as holiness. Other versions translated as godliness. The point is not to debate translations, but to vigilantly pursue purity of heart, for blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Third one is faith. Simply put, our trust and confidence in who the Lord is, what He has done, and the goodness of His providence. Faith is a gift of God, though, Matt. Why should we pursue it? 
Well, righteousness and godliness are too. Why don't you just obey the Bible? Are you anxious because our country is in shambles? Discipline your mind to believe God when He says, I am God and there is no other. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Do you struggle with assurance? Discipline your mind to believe God when He says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Faith is the belief that God is who He says He is and living in accordance with that estimation. Pursue this virtue with all you have because it is a gift of God. It is your shield against the fiery darts of the devil and it is the means by which God brings you to Christ. Then we have love. This virtue could be said as the crown jewel of the whole. To strive to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The virtue that Christ put as the witness of true conversion. They will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are to strive for that self-sacrificial love that Christ demonstrated for us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then we have steadfastness. Now I want you, anybody who knows me, I want you to mark this down. This is one of the few times where I do not like the KJV's translation. The KJV renders the word patience. And while I can see why, it can be confusing as if growing in patience with your fellow man is the virtue that's spoken of. This word means endurance, steadfastness, and perseverance. It literally remain, or means to remain under. The Christian life is a life that must start well, but also must end well. And these are two vastly different things. He who endures until the end shall be saved, Jesus said. In reform circles especially, we must be careful, as I have brought up in previous sermons, that we not take God's sovereignty as a justification to be passive. Our rest comes later. Now we must endure. This word brings the warning. All of those things the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to flee from, all through the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, comes with the warnings of some have swerved from the truth, made shipwreck of their faith. And even the last two verses of this very epistle, actually this very chapter, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. We might most likely all knew or know someone who at this moment in their life, or at one moment in their life, was pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. They were pursuing Christ in conformity to His image. They were pursuing with vigor and zeal, and then their foot came off the gas. Now they are pursuing with vigor and zeal the vomit that they returned to. It's a very real thing, and one of the means of God's perseverance of His people is the fear of the warning in Hebrews 3.12, which says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And our last virtue is gentleness, or I would say meekness of heart. This power under control and humility that is a welcome characteristic of a budding pastor. And not only in keeping a man from desiring to be great at the expense of making Christ known, not only in the handling of the many provocations he will receive from false teachers, but also in instructing the ignorant, as Paul exhorts in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, when he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, 
able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So is the point of Paul's exhortation for Timothy to flee wickedness and worldliness and chase these six virtues alone? Well, in a way, yes, or he wouldn't have listed them. But how does a man accomplish this? Both by pursuing not a list of virtues alone, but Christ himself. The point of any pursuit should always end in Christ. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. He is the aim of our great pursuit. He is the end goal of our great pursuit. He is the motivation of our great pursuit. And he is the strength of our pursuing. That leads us into our final point, fight. It is the nature of a Christian to fight. I know we like to be labeled as doormats and soft and weak, but we are soldiers in the army of the Lord. We have the spirit of the living God living within us, and we live in a world full of God-haters who love sin, false ideologies, and blasphemies, ensnaring those who say them and those who hear them. We also live with our own inner corruption. Then there's evangelism and the world trying to press us into their mold. Fighting in wartime should be natural to the on-Christian. Soldier language is riddled throughout the scriptures. Be sober-minded and watch. Put on the whole armor of God. Stand firm and contend. In 2 Timothy 2, 3-4, it says, Share in suffering, share in suffering, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The word fight in the Greek is agonizomai. And you can guess what word we get from that. Another way to say this is agonize the good agony. David Wilkerson once said, All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. I often think to myself why my life is full of so many jokes and laughs rather than tears. Am I too proud? Am I too cold? Am I too comfortable? Am I all three or a mix of them? Our Savior was called a man of sorrows. Now there is a season for everything and definitely a season to cut up and laugh. But with all the wickedness in the world and the remaining corruption within, why am I not more in anguish? I think to some degree we can all ask ourselves the same question. Where is the anguish? Joyful anguish, yes but anguish. After the remnant came back from Babylonian exile, Nehemiah caught word. The city of Jerusalem was in ruins and the people of God in distress. What was his posture? Was he scanning Facebook reels or watching Netflix? No, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Agony. Mourned for days and continued fasting and praying. Do we know something of what this means? Sure, we pray for our families to know Christ, but is there agony? We do our daily devotions, but must we know Him unless we die? We evangelize, but do we soften the blow to avoid the wrath of man? It is so easy to choose comfort over agony. 
When struggling with sin, to choose to hide our sin rather than be vulnerable and feel shame to bring it to light that we may receive healing. It's so easy to be amused rather than labor over the Scriptures and prayer, even when it feels like it's in vain. And now this agony isn't necessarily heroic. Not everyone is a David Brainer who died at 29 from tuberculosis. He literally spent and was spent in his mission to evangelize the heathen. Suffering cold, harsh winters among the elements, sick a lot of the time with various illnesses. From his biography, he said, I could have no freedom in the thought of any circumstances or business in life. All of my desire was the conversion of the heathen, and all my hope was in God. God does not suffer me to please or comfort myself with hope of seeing friends, returning to my dear acquaintance, and enjoying worldly comforts. We are called to agonize in this life, and not in some sadistic sense, but a very real one. Some will agonize as prisoners and martyrs. Some will agonize in working back-breaking jobs for 12 hours, come home exhausted, and then disciple their families. Some will agonize in the fighting for joy amidst horrendous tragedies. Agony may look different, but it should have its presence known in the Christian life. Not very many jokes are told in the midst of bullets and bombs coming towards you in war. Our enemies are far greater and the consequences are far graver than any human war. To become like Christ will require us to walk in His steps and His feet tread the path of suffering. So it says, fight the good fight. So why is this agony or this fight good? i got four reasons. It's good primarily because who we do it for. Is Christ not worth our tears and our pain? He bore our wrath, and He calls us to follow Him in this light momentary affliction. It's good because of what it produces in us. Romans chapter 5, 3-5, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. It's producing in us an eternal weight of glory, not to be compared to the suffering that gets us there. It's good because of its prize, eternal life, the incorruptible crown. There is no shame in fighting for the reward at the end. And it's good because the victory is ours, brothers and sisters. How much easier is a fight when you are sure of the victory? John Calvin says, If earthly soldiers do not hesitate to fight when the result is doubtful and when there is a risk of being killed, how much more bravely ought we do battle under the guidance and banner of Christ when we are certain of victory? And now we have the fight the good fight of faith. What does this faith mean? Well, there are two senses. There's an objective sense, which is the faith once handed down by the saints, as said in Jude 3. The purity of the gospel, doctrine, and orthodoxy. And then there is a subjective sense, our fight to believe it, our faith in the faith. In context, it seems highly likely that this primarily speaks about the objective sense. In relation to false teachers, just the same as in Jude, Paul is exhorting Timothy to fight for the purity of the gospel, to rebuke these false teachers in their blasphemies, to protect the sheep in regards to believing wrong things about God, and to protect the purity of the gospel. 
Christians, and especially elders, are to contend for the faith once handed down to the saints. Going back to opening our mouths against heresies and issues of our day, we are to fight. Our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty, and they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of God. But is it totally devoid of speaking on the subjective sense, however? Well, I believe this is a completely different and yet relevant agony of its own. Sure, we are called to fight to protect the purity of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but do you believe it practically in your own life? Do you never have a war in your mind to believe God is good to you in trials? Is there no war to fight when your livelihood is on the line as a sole provider for your family, when government mandates go against your conscience? Or when your newborn is in the hospital for over three months when God told you to be fruitful and multiply? Or how about the fight to believe that Christ continues to intercede for you even after the thousandth time you've sinned and the same sin you swore you repented of? Paul Washer once said, One of the greatest acts of faith is to read the Word and see the infinite chasm between you and God and believe He loves you as much as He says He does. I believe that there is definitely a marriage of the two senses of fighting the good fight of faith. So why did I combine fight the good fight and lay hold of eternal life? Well, no man may lay hold of eternal life without fighting for it. We see that. But yet no man can fight for it without first laying hold of eternal life. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. And this is why laying hold of eternal life is the good fight. The prize is life eternal, the crown of life that is given to us by God Himself. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence, and the violent lay claim to it. There is this zeal, a fight, and a courage that a saint must have like a barrage of intruders trying to claw their way into a safe haven from a pending nuclear attack. There is a sense where I must have it or I won't have it. This is not a word about salvation by works because we know it is all of grace. But do we think the Scriptures would use words like strive, fight, flee, and pursue if the attitude of a Christian was just to waltz through an open door? Yes, in Christ we are saved. And we are saved eternally. Yes, in Christ, God has given us everything necessary to complete this journey to the celestial city we are on. Yes, in Christ, God actually causes us to obey His will and walk in His ways. But does that mean we are to be passive and not heed His admonitions to rip out eyeballs that we may enter? Are we not often in the state of mind that the crown of thorns that we are called to wear will not be that sharp? That the world will only oppose us half-heartedly. That sin can be mortified with a few changed habits. That daily decisions to choose comfort over duty won't really affect us that much. Do we tend to agree with the world, at least in action, that God is too gracious to call us to truly suffer? And to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's actually good that this is a baptism Sunday for this. 
in front of many witnesses gives both imagery of accountability and motivation to not only, quote-unquote, let God down, but those who saw your profession of faith. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want to conclude this morning with an illustration. Imagine being a gladiator in Rome. Some gladiators were free men contracted to fight by a manager, but most were slaves and imprisoned, seen as lower than the bottom or the dregs of society. And after a meal and maybe, just maybe, a cold bath, your cell opens and you are led in chains into the arena. The Roman Colosseum was rumored to hold 87,000 spectators, and judging by their lack of UFC pay-per-views, I bet it always sold out. And as you await your opponent, whether it be another gladiator or a wild animal, you notice the crowd cheering for your death. You look up and you see the emperor take his seat. The eyes of the king are on you to see how you fare. The prize for winning is surviving. Surviving to go back into your filthy cell. Surviving to go back into your slave labor. And this is hardly an existence one would want to really hold on to. But it's life though, isn't it? And how hard would you fight to lay hold of survival? The fight begins and ends with you as the victor. Congratulations. The crowds that were chanting for your death are now cheering your name. But you don't hear them though. Because you're looking at the emperor who is standing afar off applauding you. If the gladiator fought to the death in order to lay hold of his temporal life, how much harder should we fight to lay hold of eternal life? The prize is sweeter in quantity, because it's eternal, and quality. The life with Christ, no more pain or sorrow, no sickness, and ever-increasing joy, peace, and knowledge of our Savior. And if the gladiator was deaf to 87,000 cheering spectators for one applause of the emperor, how much greater is the king that looks upon us standing in trials and gaining victory over sin? The applause of the emperor was wonderful, I would bet. But how much better will it be to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your grace that you have called us to war, but you are our captain, that you help us. That these impossible tasks, that when all is said and done, we will know that it was you that did it all. Father, we, we, we thank you for your grace and salvation. We thank you for your grace in moving us um, in our sanctification. We pray that... Um, that you have been pleased today with our worship. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would convict us and comfort us in the fact that we are called to fight. We are called to strive. We are called to anguish. But Jesus is our rock and our Savior and our King. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.